you feel completely isolated because the shame and the guilt puts you in a box where you say, oh no, I can't deal with this. I can't go to other people with my problem. And then once you start realizing and you come into a group setting and you start realizing you're not the only one dealing with a problem, a magical thing happens. That connection completely starts taking the place of the dependency that you have on alcohol because like you said, addiction is the opposite opposite of connection and it's not just connection with others but also connection with yourself. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 173. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. The challenge marks a really big turnaround for me. So any, every, all the self-help books and all the talks that I'd listened to and everything kind of culminated in that moment. And it was like the minute I pulled the plug on the liquor, everything else opened. And it really, it, it was such a big shift that you'd have, you know, kind of cognitive little bursts and pops before, um, but releasing, it was like a valve got released and it just, it re- I can see a marked difference. That's where my life really changed. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest this week is narrative therapist Tessa Freeman. Narrative therapy is very much in line with our approach at Tribe Sober because it's all about separating a person from their problem. It's about ditching that guilt and shame that often comes along with alcohol dependence. It's about enabling people to realise that they should not be labelling themselves or see themselves as broken or the problem or powerless Tessa and I have both had a lot of experience of working with groups and we agreed that the magic of community is that we can gradually replace our addiction with connection to the community. So I began our conversation by asking Tessa to introduce herself. Okay, so my name is Tessa Freeman de Brown. I live in Pretoria and I've been a narrative therapist for the past uh, almost seven years. 
And I did a master's um, in religious studies. And within our studies, we did have a subject called narrative therapy, which piqued my interest a bit. And then after my studies, immediately my father passed away, which was a huge event, existential crisis for me. And then I got introduced to narrative therapy because I had to go see a therapist. And a friend of mine knew this narrative therapist. And that's how I fell into becoming a narrative therapist myself. So, Tessa, do you drink alcohol? No, actually, I've decided, I decided about five years ago that I wanted to live an alcohol-free life. I didn't have any problems with alcohol, and I'm thankful for that because I know what a struggle it can be. I always tell people I have many issues in life, but alcohol is not one of them. And I decided because it's not an issue for me, I'm going to leave it in my past. It's just not something that I need to live with. And since then, my mental health has been better. My physical health has been better. And we mostly in our home live an alcohol-free living. We just, just don't have alcohol in our home. So yeah, we promote that in our household. And I've just seen alcohol ruin so many lives. So I decided... As a person, as a narrative therapist that worked with addiction so often, I should really practice what I preach, you know. Okay, well, it's, it's wonderful to, to meet more and more people that are choosing an alcohol-free life, not because they have a problem, but because they can see it's a, it's a healthier way to live. So well done you for working that out. So narrative therapy, I think I vaguely know what it is, but some of our listeners may have never heard of it. So can you define it, please? Yeah, so this um, narrative therapy was actually an invention by two psychotherapists, Michael White and David Epstein, in the 1980s in Australia. And they, they sought out a new way of working with their clients and they thought of a way to, to speak to clients that is a respectful, non-blaming and non-judgmental approach to counseling and community work. So it's based on the client being the expert. And if we have to use a metaphor to explain narrative therapy, it would be like going on a journey with someone where you walk beside them as therapists, not in front of them. So you always stay curious and you go out from the assumption that people have abilities, skills, commitments, beliefs and competencies for themselves that can help them lessen the influence of problems in their own lives or even completely eradicate that problem from their lives. So it's a more postmodern way of doing therapy based also in the psychotherapy realm. But as a therapist, it's just important to always maintain a stance of curiosity and always be asking questions to which you genuinely don't know the answer. So you don't go in as therapist as being an expert with massive degree behind you and the person sitting in front of you is a pathetic person that doesn't know how to help themselves. It's simply a person that comes with a problem and you help them deconstruct that problem and externalize that problem. So when working with addiction, specifically in narrative therapy, we say always say that the person is not the problem, the problem is the problem. So we always externalize the problem from the person. Those two are separate. So no matter what problem you come with in the narrative therapy space, we always try to externalize that and deconstruct that problem first. Because we live in a society with so many social discourses, which we internalize at the end of the day. 
I love that because so many people feel so much shame and guilt about having an alcohol problem. And I love your stance of separating the problem from the person because 20% of uh, social drinkers will become dependent over the years. So those of us that develop a problem, you know, we're simply in that 20%. And in the alcohol-drenched society that we live in, it's no wonder that some people, some people get into trouble. So narrative therapy is a bit like coaching. I'm a coach and we always say that we're not there to to fix our clients. We're there to help them fix themselves because they have all the all the power and solutions within them. So, yeah, I love externalizing the problem. Very powerful. And your metaphor is lovely too. walking alongside the person, not coming up with with the solution for them. We believe at Tribe Sober that connection is the opposite of addiction. Do you believe that as well? Absolutely. That's one of the main things that we learn when we start working with people that have a problem with addiction. And it has proven so many times over and over again to be the truth. With narrative therapy, we often use group group sessions and group therapy um, to help people with addiction because that connection is so, so needed. And what the problem actually does is it isolates you. So I always say people don't wake up and say, oh, I want to be an alcoholic. It's a, it's a process. So you start off, like you said, with social drinking, and then unfortunately it goes on to being a more dependency-based problem and you feel completely isolated because the shame and the guilt puts you in a box where you say oh no I can't deal with this I can't go to other people with my problem and then once you start realizing and you come into a group setting and you start realizing you're not the only one dealing with a problem a magical thing happens that connection completely starts taking the place of the dependency that you have on alcohol because like you said Addiction is the opposite opposite of connection, and it's not just connection with others, but also connection with yourself, because the problem takes away that connection with yourself. We often say with addiction that the problem of addiction is like a seductive lover. It wants to convince you, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that will understand you. I'm the only one that will love you. I'm the only one that will take care of you. And once we break down that barrier to see, and people can see, oh no, there's a lot of people that actually can connect with my problem and I can connect with these. You don't really need that seductive lover anymore. You don't need to be seduced by the problem anymore because you've created this connection with so many other people that actually also have the same problem as you. And a problem is just that, a problem. It's not who you are as a person. Yeah. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I love the seductive lover. We we also use that analogy. And in fact, on our website, we've got a whole section which is called Goodbye to Alcohol Letters. Because one of the tools that we encourage our members to use is to write a goodbye to alcohol letter. And in that letter, write all the, the harm, the, the problems that alcohol has, has caused them and how they just want this stuff out of their life. And these letters are so powerful. They really are. And I wrote one on my first soberversary after my first year of sobriety and it's very powerful and it's something that I often reread, not that I'm ever tempted to drink again, but it's a very powerful and cathartic experience. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Another thing I wanted to ask you, Tessa, is 
we have workshops. I mean, they used to be in person and now they're via Zoom because we uh, we get people from all over the world attending. And at the beginning of the uh, workshop, we always ask people to talk about their relationship with alcohol and tell us how, how it happened, how they got dependent. And these stories are so powerful, you know, and, and when we used to do it in person, it was really noticeable how people would cry sometimes when they were sharing their story and other people would react so strongly and go and give them a hug and find tissues. And mm-hmm. it was it was such a deep bond. And it always struck me, you know, these people were absolute strangers when they walked into a room and half an hour later they were bearing their souls and telling these stories and I think for the first time ever it struck me just how powerful storytelling is and sharing your story. Do you want to talk about that, the power of storytelling? Because I would have thought that has a big place to play in narrative therapy. Absolutely, so stories and language are the way that we make meaning of our lives. Um, uh, We absolutely define ourselves by the stories that we have to tell. So once you open up and you can tell your story, it's like giving a part of yourself to someone else and sharing a part of who you truly are. So it's not simply just talking and and putting a bunch of words together. It's bearing yourself, bearing your soul. So it's an absolutely sacred thing that people do. And I'm saying sacred not in a religious sense. I mean in a spiritual sense because we all are – um, human beings with, with insights and emotions and thoughts. And when we tell our stories, we are giving life to who we are and we're sharing that with other people. So it is extremely powerful. We create so much of our lives based on simple sentences. I'm just thinking of some social discourses that we can think of when it comes to something like the problem of alcohol. Because I was just discussing having kids one day with with a a friend of mine, and she said to me, you know, Tessa, you will actually have to start drinking to cope with being a mom. It's absolutely impossible to do it without alcohol. She used the metaphor of saying, you know, um, it takes a vineyard to raise a child. And those are stories that she shares based on her life. And the stories that I could share based on my life, even though I don't have children, are not based on those social discourses. So she's internalized these stories that she's heard in a social context to create meaning in her life. So this is the way she has created meaning in the way of being a mom, in in the way of being a parent. Um, So we use these stories to create meaning and they become absolutely an ethos and a part of who we are as human beings. So Our stories define us and create our realities for us. So whatever stories you internalize will have an effect on the rest of your life and the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you do huge things like, for instance, parent, which is very powerful. So we have to be very careful with the way we interpret stories. Sometimes stories come to us uninvited, obviously, you scroll on Instagram and you, you see something that someone tells you and that goes into your mind. And it's not something you may be invited. So you need to be able to interpret these stories to make them relevant for your life or to discard them and say, this is just not part of the narrative that I want to live. So stories bring meaning to our lives. 
They do. And the, the mommy juice examples were very powerful that you just used. And we, I think a lot of drinkers hold false narratives. You know, one of these false narratives, of course, is we need wine to be a parent. You know, it's a, it's become a, a parenting aid almost, hasn't it? And as your friend said, oh, when you have it children, you, you'll need to to drink. And once people start to believe these stories, they turn into limiting beliefs, don't they? And then they're, they're looking for confirmation bias. They'll go on their Instagram and they'll see lots of memes like, you know, it takes a vineyard to raise a child. And that, that makes those beliefs become deeper and deeper. So as a therapist, how, how would you overturn those uh, false narratives? How, if you were working with your, your friend, I mean, she probably doesn't want to do any work at the moment. But yes. if you're working with her, how, how would you help her overturn that, that false narrative that you need wine to be a parent? In narrative therapy, we start reauthoring. So we start deconstructing and we start remembering times when Something like alcohol wasn't needed. We ask questions to which we really honestly don't have the answers and we're curious to journey with the client. So I would ask someone, do you remember a time where alcohol wasn't part of parenting or do you remember a time where alcohol wasn't part of your life and how was that like? And um, what truth can you tell me? about who you are when it comes to you, yourself without alcohol. Who are you? Um, so I would start with reauthoring and trying to externalize the, the false stories and getting to the alternative stories because a lot of clients have alternative stories to tell us. A lot of times a client comes in and says, you know, I'm such a bad mom or I'm a I'm uh, not a, not good at my job or um, they tell such a limited story about themselves. They will come in and tell you just the story about their journey with alcohol. Um, they won't tell you about the master's degree that they got or the successful marriage that they have or the wonderful business that they're running or the wonderful community work that they're doing. They come in and they discuss the problem. And they don't see all the other things that are going on in their lives that are such rich alternative stories to counteract the problem story that they're actually coming in and telling you. So it's about internalizing and strengthening those positive stories where maybe alcohol or the problem, whatever the problem is, it wasn't involved or wasn't there and strengthening those stories and reauthoring that person's identity of who they are because we aren't the problem. You are never the problem. You are a person with a problem. And once you realize you have many other skills and you have many other talents, many other commitments, abilities, values that can reduce the influence of the problem, then it becomes a little bit easier to separate yourself from that problem because Surely somebody like my friend, there, there was a time when she managed life easily without alcohol. What about the, the morning she spends with her kids and the breakfast conversation she has and the helping with homework she does, all those things without alcohol. And now jokingly saying, oh, I need that mommy juice to get through a day. But you've gotten through the day and you've 
help your kids and you've parented well and it is stressful, what can we find in your life that you've done previously to reduce stress? Maybe you've been an avid yoga member at a, a, a yoga studio or maybe you've um, been somebody that's done really well with exercise or you've been doing well with journaling. Maybe you can use those things to replace the problem. Maybe you can you have tools in your own arsenal that you can use. So it's about strengthening those alternative stories and finding those alternative stories, asking questions to find them um, because we yeah. aren't the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finding the stories is an interesting phrase because I guess these stories are quite deep, aren't they? They're, they're in our subconscious rather than our, in our conscious mind, would you say? And therapy can help to surface those stories. Absolutely, because the, once again, the problem convinces you that's the, that it is the be-all and the end-all and the only important thing in your life, especially when it comes to addiction. Um, and you forget all about the internalized things that have happened in your life that have been so successful and are actually now kind of on a subconscious level because this thing that have infiltra has infiltrated your life has completely taken over and made you kind of forget. It's a, like an abusive relationship in some ways. You forget about all the other successful relationships you have and you start normalizing and thinking, oh, no, but this behavior is normal. Being treated this way is normal. So you have to start remembering, oh, no, but this is not normal. Um, this is not the way that I have lived um, and want to go live going forward. So it is about that thing about remembering what has happened in your life and, and trying to find it. Yeah, yeah. I love the um, approach of focusing on, on those positives because so many people, particularly women, I think, that have become alcohol dependent, there's so much shame and guilt. So focusing on those positive aspects of that person's career and personality is really powerful, isn't it? Absolutely. Tell me how you became interested in addiction, Tessa, because I, I can tell you know a lot about it, the way you talk about it. I actually decided to, when I had to do my practical um, supervision years for uh, my, my um, journey with narrative therapy and my studies, started working at an NGO that was mainly working with people um, struggling with addiction. So I did all my practical years when it came to therapy with people struggling with addiction, and that could have been people struggling with process addictions like gambling, porn, sex addictions, and then mostly actually um, with substance addictions. So that's where I became interested in it. And I've, I always have been faced with some someone or something in my life where it came to addiction, whether that had been food, alcohol, and I also grew up in a setting where the party scene and alcohol was huge. I started my journey in my mid-twenties, and that was a time where I found a lot of my friends were still stuck in the place where drinking every day was super normal for them, and it was completely normalized because you're in your twenties, and it doesn't matter, and you can party still, and you won't have hangovers until you're in your thirties, and I just could not relate with them because for me, alcohol always made me feel horrible 
always felt like I was poisoning myself a little bit. I've always been faced with people in my life that have had issues with either substance, alcohol, or process addiction, and then ended up doing my practical years um, with an NGO that worked mainly with, uh, with addictions. And what would you say are your biggest learnings from working with people that have addiction? When I started working with people that have problems with addiction, I was shocked. I thought addiction is a problem that only few people really uh, deal with. It's something that probably is um, severe. People that are unhomed or unemployed struggle with addiction. It's not a mainstream problem. It's a rarity. And then when I walked into my first group session, I was faced with a lot of people all at once, all who were employed people, all who were functioning, all who had careers, but still had this problem, still had this problem of addiction facing them. So I thought the way that the media depicts addiction is probably the way it would be. And it's not the case. These are people that completely function, mostly function and have other things in their lives that they commit their time and space to, but they, the problem always creeps in. So it became evident to me that this is actually a huge problem. It's not a thing that only targets a minority of people in certain socioeconomic uh, circumstances. It's a problem that does not discriminate. It will attack you whether you are rich, poor, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your sexual orientation, you can sit with this problem regardless of who you are. The problem does not discriminate. So that's the biggest thing that shocked me when I started working with addiction is this concept that the problem simply does not discriminate. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Yeah, and this, again, it's a false narrative that society creates, doesn't it? Because society loves to put us in our boxes. We're either an alcoholic and we're homeless in the park with our bottle of whiskey or whatever, or we're a normal drinker. But there's millions of us in between those two extremes. But because that's such a common perception and there is such a stigma against the alcoholic People say to themselves, oh, okay, drinking a lot, but I haven't hit rock bottom yet. So I'm not like that guy in the park. I'm holding it all together. And the people that we work with, I mean, I was one myself. We do hold it all together. We have responsible jobs. We're bringing up our families. We look fine. Nobody would ever guess that we had a problem. But to maintain this okay persona takes a massive amount of energy So what I love about my work is when we help people to ditch the booze, we then do more work with them and help them to create a different kind of life. And they they redirect all that energy they were using to keep the show on the road, even though they had awful hangovers some days. They redirect that energy into discovering what they really like, because, as you said earlier, sobriety enables you to connect with yourself as much as other people so you can find out who you really are what you really want to do 
So it's a fascinating field. And yeah, that false narrative about the alcoholic in the park, it's its kept a lot of people trapped in their drinking. And in fact, they are functioning alcoholics. And there are so many of them everywhere I've worked. I've worked in corporates all my life. And I've always worked in places that had a work hard, play hard culture. So that meant that drinking was completely normalized. So we'd work very hard, very long hours, do good work, but then we would go out drinking together. And that was uh-huh. just normal. And if you didn't want to participate in that, then, you know, you were written off as boring, which is uh, is so wrong. <laughs> absolutely. That's absolutely one of the lies that the problem also tells us. And that's the issue with alcohol in general. Addiction is one thing, but I, I really commend you guys for working with the problem of alcohol because it's not illegal. So there's no stigma yeah. against having a drink or two. And in South Africa specifically, that's simply the way we celebrate. We yeah. are taught in our culture that we celebrate with alcohol. I mean, I was recently at a children's birthday party where the young child was turning three and all the parents came along and there was a jumping castle for the kids and the, the parents indulged in alcohol at a children's party. And it's absolutely normal because in the South African context, that's just the way we celebrate with food and drink. And when I say drink, I mean alcohol. I mean, I've been to one wedding where no alcohol was allowed. The whole wedding was over by 7 p.m., because people just simply did not know how to enjoy themselves. They could not enjoy themselves or see themselves enjoying the rest of the evening without alcohol and had to leave early to consume alcohol. It is a very difficult problem to tackle in the realm of addiction because it's so socially acceptable. And even not socially acceptable, but something that is promoted, something that is advertised, something that is in our faces and so part of our culture. So I really commend you at Tribe Sober for for your work. I mean, it's absolutely stellar to be able to journey with these people that have decided I'm going counterculture. I'm going to completely change what the narrative is in South Africa. So absolutely hats off to you guys. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And that's that's half the problem when we give up because we have all this social pressure. People say, what do you mean you don't drink? And oh, that's a bit boring, isn't it? So we have to cope with all that. And it gets easier, obviously, as time goes on. And personally, I used to feel very embarrassed and apologetic in my early sobriety. But now I'm proud to be sober. (laughs) So yeah, it's quite something. And yeah, the hard drugs thing. I mean, it's it's much harder to give up alcohol because alcohol's everywhere. If you give up heroin or cocaine, presumably you can stop going to the places where you used to take it, try and stop mixing with that crowd. Mm-hmm. But it's it's harder to give up booze. But I don't know if you know the figures, but alcohol-related diseases kill more than 3 million people a year globally. And that is is many, many times more than people die from hard drugs. I completely can relate to that because in our NGO, where we work with addiction, the only people that have passed away have been people that are, are struggling with the problem of alcohol. We have not lost a single person to any other substance but alcohol. So it is something that we are so aware of. It is a massive problem. 
So thinking about narrative therapy, if you came across someone that was very dependent and they need help, would you advise one-to-one or straight into group therapy or a mix of, of both? How does it work? A mix of both, really. So we would start out with having an individual therapist, somebody that you can reach out to whenever, wherever, when you are struggling with a problem, when you are struggling with a trigger, you would set up individual, hopefully face-to-face meetings. If not, Zoom is fine, but also have a group session. Incorporate that person in, in the group. That's the only way that I see the problem actually becoming quiet because when you sit in that group, you start having these connections, as we said earlier, and you start realizing, wow, I'm actually not the only one dealing with this. Because no matter how non-judgmental and non-blaming your narrative therapist is, if they haven't been someone that has been struggling with a problem of addiction, they simply can't always relate completely to what you're saying. So group therapy, individual therapy, and also if it's somebody that is still currently using alcohol or any substance, then you would obviously have also the help of a doctor, a medical doctor to, to assist them because a lot of people when they start seeking help can't quit cold turkey when it comes to alcohol. It's very dangerous to do so. So you would have to involve a doctor as well. But yeah, a combination of individual therapy and group therapy is, is essential, I think. And that's what I've seen in my practice has been the one thing that has helped. Um, You find a lot of clients in the beginning when they come for the individual sessions super scared to incorporate them into a group, ashamed, guilt once again. And then we say guilt and shame are just some of the tools that the problem uses to keep you away from getting help and getting better. Um, So we try to externalize those two as well and trying to normalize having a problem, normalize trying to get help and get healthy in our individual sessions so that the person becomes more comfortable incorporating into groups. We always say one group session is like having three individual sessions. And I don't know if you can relate to that, but sometimes the powerful things that come out in a group session are just not something that we can get within one session with a therapist. Because there's also a little bit of a power discourse still in some of the individual sessions where when you're the coach or you're the narrative therapist, the client automatically feels like they're a little bit inferior or they're there for guidance and you're the, you're the leader. So when they're in the group, there's none of that stigma. You are one of many. And with all due respect, I'm saying this, how ununique their problem is. Because a lot of the times you you get these clients, they come in and they suffer from eternal uniqueness and terminal uniqueness, we sometimes call it, because they think nobody understands what I'm going through. My problem is so massive. I'm dealing with so much. And once they get into that group, they realize I'm not as unique. I am as unique, but my problem is not as unique. And the why the problem attacks me is not so unique. It is doing the same thing. So it's almost like a person in an abusive relationship meets someone else that's in a, in a relationship with that same person and they start to realize, oh, but he or she is doing the exact same thing to me. Oh, um, that's a very so, good analogy. <laughs> so yes. I think groups are very essential to recovery for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, we find in our community it's so powerful because people are at different stages. Some people stay with us. Some people get sober and then they they go off into the sunset or some people, you know, aren't prepared to do the work so they leave. But we get a lot of people that get sober but they've all, they've made friends in the community and they want to stick around. And what's wonderful is to see those people who we've seen with a really difficult problem and then suddenly they're advising each other and they're saying things like, oh, when I was at two months, that was happening to me and this is how I dealt with it. Oh. And that, that is so powerful and that they can relate to that person's advice far more than mine because now I'm seven years down the road. So I kind of struggle Absolutely. to remember those early days. So, yeah, that, that group connection is, is so powerful. And we find, I mean, you can't generalize totally, but as a rule of thumb, we find that when people join Tribe Sober and if they do the work, by which I mean stay connected and, and use the tools that we give them, then within six months, really, they can have changed the, the habit, the drinking habit. And then another few months, perhaps they need to work on reconfiguring their life because then we have to learn how to navigate this alcohol drug society and, and feel at ease socially and be able to explain to people comfortably why we don't drink. So we find that certainly within a year, if someone's prepared to to make the effort, they can completely change their life. And I wondered if that kind of timing, if you've seen that reflected. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with what in group sessions, what we call um, insider knowledge is super important because you're sitting there with a bunch of people with a bunch of knowledge and they are insiders when it comes to the problem. So the groups are very essential and very important. And in the groups, you also start to uh, realize that cross addiction can be a problem. A lot of people replace the problem with alcohol with food or with what have you, shopping, um, spending money. So it is not a thing where you can say, okay, I've been sober for two weeks, I haven't had a drink. Other problems do pop up. Problems are often multi-layered. Um, our lives are very multi-layered. We are wives, moms, daughters, sisters, friends. And in all those realms, we need to live and um, feel comfortable. And just like that, the problem has multi-layered um, tentacles that, that kind of reach out into you. And it's not just about becoming sober, but staying sober. What I like about Tribe Sober is that this concept of people becoming part of the tribe and staying a part of the tribe because problems pop up here and there. And whether that is to do with alcohol or not, there are people in those groups that you communicate with that probably have, have faced numerous problems. We have some clients that have been with us for years and you get clients that come in make the decision like yourself and never relapse and they still stay in our groups um, they still stay part of the tribe because they might have other issues popping up and they also have the sense of I would like to give back I would like to help others but I would say for someone starting out you need to prepare yourself for, for a journey it's not going to be a 21 day stay 
because we often see with in South Africa with medical aids, they will play, pay for rehabilitation, you know, rehab for about 21 days. And then people walk there out there and they think, oh, no, I'm done. You know, I'm sober, I'm, I'm clean. And it's simply not the case. We're playing the long game here yeah. Um, yeah. because the problem wants to reintroduce uh, in- itself into your life. And it's seductive. It wants to seduce you all the time. So longevity, I don't want to put a, a specific time on it, but your know, longevity and, and making it a lifestyle. So if I have to use a metaphor, it's not a diet. You don't go on a diet. You change your lifestyle. And because you change your lifestyle, you need your supporters. You need your support system. Because the pro- problem is so normalized, we get often get clients where the, the client wants to become sober, but the spouse says, oh, no way. I'm not trying to be sober here. So they, they actually need a, a, a long-term support system. And, and that's where Tribe Sober is so special and unique because you you allow, I saw on your website, a very reasonable membership for a person with no increases for um, remaining members, which is fabulous. You're making it so easy for these people to walk the walk and stay on the path for as long as possible. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Yeah, and well, thank you, Tessa. But one of the, the things that we love is our longer term members. They've, they've got on to have to develop interest. We've had people that have started painting, you know, they've really got in touch with their creativity or we've got people that are writing, writing articles and stories and recovery stories sometimes. And people that have got very into sport, people like that, they're so inspiring. And it's it's not just about quitting drinking, you know, that's just step one in my view. The, the step two is is just creating a different life and a life that you love. Another, I mean, we've absolutely. both talked about how it's, it's a long game, and I absolutely agree with you there. But what I don't want people to believe, and this is why I'm a little bit against AA techniques sometimes. I mean, I'm not dissing AA. They, they help millions of people. But they do create sometimes this feeling that it, this is a lifetime struggle. And I think if you really do the work, and by doing the work, I mean stay connected with a sobriety community or at least, you know, some close friends that don't drink. But it doesn't have to be a lifetime struggle. People have asked me that at a workshop, for example. I always remember a lady that uh, watched the presentation about our 15 tools. You know, we have a toolkit. And she said, oh, do I have to do all of these things every day? Is this going to be a lifetime struggle? Uh, And, uh. you know, I want people to know that, yes, it's hard work for a few months, but stick at it and then it will become normal. And apart from being connected to a few other people on the same path, you don't really need to to work at it anymore. So, um, yeah, that's another bit of a false narrative there. I think that it has to be yeah. a struggle because it, it becomes a joy. It's the opposite of a struggle mm. for most of us when we've clocked up a few years. 
Yeah, I just wanted to say on your comment with AA, I also, you know, if it works, whatever, we always say whatever works, works. So if AA works or NA works, sure, do it. Um, but what makes narrative therapy a little bit different from the AA and the NA, you never with narrative therapy would do something where you say, hi, people, my name is Tessa and I'm an addict. Because yeah. that places the problem within the the person. Absolutely. Um, you saying, I am the problem. Where with narrative therapy, you would rather say, hi, I'm Tessa, I have a problem with alcohol. Yeah. Or I, I have a bad relationship with alcohol, which I'm trying to end. This concept of it being a disease and it's being part of you and you are a sick person for the rest of your life and it's something that you just have to deal with every day, I so agree with you, is not necessarily a helpful tool in, in what I have experienced. You could rather say, I've had a bad relationship with alcohol or I have a bad relationship with alcohol, but I'm breaking up with it. It doesn't mean you didn't didn't have that relationship. Yes, once you've been married and you get divorced, you would always have that ex-partner. And it's the same thing with alcohol. Once you've ended that relationship, it's not that the past is erased, but your future is in your hands. So you don't get up every session and say, hi, I'm an alcoholic. You say, hi, I'm recovering from alcohol. Or you just don't say it anymore because people will assume in the group that you are here because you believe in sobriety or you believe in recovery and you believe in overcoming. And yeah, it is a journey, but it, it becomes easier, as you said. So, Tessa, if someone would like to try narrative therapy, which I think sounds fascinating and incredibly powerful, how can they find a good therapist? Okay, so I am, along with my friend Crystal Mulder, have created a platform called Sandcall, South African Narrative Therapy Collective, where we list therapists that are registered, vetted um, by us um, and we have a directory where you can find therapists. We can refer. We, we There's a lot of South African narrative therapists available that we know of. It's a community in its in of itself. You can find us on www.santcol.co.za and we have a directory there. You can pop us an email and we can refer you to a number of therapists. Okay, so my email address that you can use, you can use tessa at soundcool.co.za. Thank you so much, Tessa. I always felt drawn towards narrative therapy as I believe in the power of stories and I've learned so much from that conversation. Let's pull out just a few key points. When Tessa lost her father, she needed support, so she had some narrative therapy. These sessions piqued her interest to such an extent that she decided to train as a narrative therapist herself. And she's now a narrative therapist specialising in addiction. Tessa explained that, a bit like coaching, narrative therapy is based on the fact that the client is the expert and the therapist or the coach walks alongside them rather than in front of them. When working with alcohol-dependent clients, Tessa will always separate the problem from the person, which will reduce any feelings of guilt and shame. 
we agreed that addiction can be very isolating. But once we join a group, we realise that we're not the only one and we feel so much better. And eventually, connection with the group begins to take the place of the addiction. At Tribe Sober, we say that alcohol treats us like an abusive lover would treat us. And we encourage our members to write a goodbye to alcohol letter, just as if they were writing to that abusive lover. If you'd like to see some, just go to tribesober.com and click on podcasts, blogs and more. Tessa also makes use of this analogy, explaining that if two women who'd been in an abusive relationship with the same man were to meet, they would have an instant bond and understand the damage that that relationship has caused. That makes me think of that beautiful quote by C.S. Lewis. Friendship is born in the moment when one person says to another, you too, I thought I was the only one. When I first started working in this field seven years ago, I was amazed by the bond I could see developing so quickly between our members, complete strangers from all over the world, but their common experience enables them to be vulnerable and open with each other, which in turn creates a deep connection. We talked about the shares that take place at the beginning of each of our workshops, That's when each participant will share just how unhappy alcohol's been making them and these shares demonstrate the power of storytelling. Storytelling is of course the foundation of narrative therapy and Tessa explained that we make sense of our lives by the stories we tell ourselves and when we share our stories we are bearing our souls and showing who we really are and also demonstrating the power of vulnerability. We talked about the many false narratives in the public domain and Tessa gave us an example of her friend explaining that if Tessa wanted to have children, she would have to start drinking because it takes a vineyard to raise a child. These kind of stories are so common that eventually we internalise them and look for confirmation bias to convince ourselves that yes, they are true. This is how we end up with limiting beliefs buried deep in our subconscious mind. These limiting beliefs are shared by our friends and that's how a global trend like mommy juice is born. I asked Tessa to explain how she would use narrative therapy to overturn this belief. This belief that it takes a vineyard to raise a child. Her approach would be to deconstruct it, to stay curious about it and to challenge it. Tessa would take her friend back to a time before she drank when she didn't hold this belief. She would ask her to think about who she is without alcohol. Tessa would help her friend to externalise her story by searching for good stories. Tessa would help her friend to externalise her story by searching for good stories. A period when alcohol was not present. And she would also remind her that in fact she parents for most of the day without alcohol and she would help her to explore alternative ways of reducing the stress. The next step would be to co-author a new belief, which would alter her friend's identity. It's so important to remember that you are never the problem, rather you are the person with a problem. Focusing on the client's strengths makes it easier to separate them from the problem. It's about building and strengthening alternative stories that we can hold about ourselves. 
Many of us who were or are alcohol dependent have low self-esteem from all those years of trying and failing to cut down or quit, so focusing on our strengths will help to rebuild our feelings of self-worth. I often say that the path to sobriety is about learning to love and nurture ourselves again, about learning to put ourselves first rather than last. When I asked Tessa what she'd learned during her time working in the addiction field, she told me that when she started her job, she was expecting to be working with a lot of homeless or unemployed people. That meant she got a big surprise when she discovered that most of her clients were high-functioning people with good careers. And that's when she realised that addiction was not a rarity. In fact, it's gone mainstream. She learned that addiction doesn't discriminate between rich or poor, between races or gender, anyone can fall victim to alcohol dependence. And in fact, the stats tell us that 20% of social drinkers will become dependent over the years. We agreed that although hard drugs are demonised, the socially acceptable legal drug called alcohol kills far more people every year. In fact, 3 million people die every year from alcohol-related causes. And if you listen to the Tribe Sober podcast interview with Professor Tim Stockwell, you'll hear his theory that the figure is actually far higher due to the way that deaths are reported. I'll post the link to that podcast in the show notes. We talked about the power of group sessions and the relief that people feel when they realise they're not alone in this. Tessa likes to help alcohol-dependent clients with a mix of individual and group therapy. People are often nervous to join a group due to their guilt and shame. So Tessa likes to work one-to-one with them so they can see that the guilt and the shame are just tools the addiction is using to prevent the user from seeking help. And we agreed that even when people have clocked up a few months of sobriety, it's still important to stay in the group. As Tessa said, other problems may pop up and cross-addiction sometimes happens. You'll need your tribe. And we need to keep adding to our toolkit to ensure that we not only stay sober, but we start building an alcohol-free life that we love. And we need to make sure that if fading effect bias hits and we hear that voice saying, surely we can have just one now, that we have our community reminding us that actually we can't ever have just one. We have to rather divert that energy divert it from trying to control an addictive substance which takes so much energy. Far better to divert that energy into creating a life we don't want to escape from. What we've seen at Tribe Sober over the years is that from our 400 members, we have a core of members who've been sober for years but who stick around to help and inspire each other and the newer members. Friendships have formed between these members who are in different countries with different life experience and who all have each other's backs. So if you'd like to try the power of community for yourself, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. You can reach Tessa via her website, which is sankolkoza, or via her email, which is tessa at sankolkoza. I'll put the links in the show notes. So let me end by reading a message from one of our chat rooms. This message is from Michelle from our Breaking Free group. Hi Louise, feeling good. Went to a funeral yesterday where drink was everywhere, but I was okay. I'm doing the Breaking Free workshop tomorrow 
And I was determined to do it with a clear head. So just got to get through today, but feeling positive and feeling so much better. And then she gets a reply from Louise who says, Going to a funeral was a big test. Well done you for not caving in. The workshop will help so much. Keep up the good work, Michelle. Keep us updated on how you're doing and we're all here if you need anything. Just a tiny example of how people in our community really care about each other. So apart from updates and encouragement, you'll also find some quotations on our chat groups. Here's a recent one that I really love. Addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. Happiness is a progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. The former emerges passively, the latter takes work. That's a quote from the amazing Andrew Huberman. Just a little reminder that we must do the work. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.